Today on Not Cleared, we have a news roundtable on Afghanistan with Kyle Scheidler and Adam Savitt, where we discuss the August 31st withdrawal date that the Biden administration just came out and said they are sticking to in response to pressure from the Taliban. But as you'll see and hear in our conversation, this doesn't really come as a surprise to any of us. We also touch on CIA Director Byrne's recent meeting with Taliban officials, presumably to move that August 31st date, which obviously didn't happen. And we finish with a discussion of Taiwan and China and how the United States actions in Afghanistan very well could have an impact on the Taiwanese people in the coming months if the Chinese decide to take military action against them. Okay, so the crisis in Afghanistan seems to be getting worse and worse each day for pretty much everybody but the Taliban. And there's this piece from CBS News titled, Military Planners Hope for Decision by Tuesday on Whether the United States Will Keep August 31st Afghanistan Withdrawal Deadline. So Biden back in July changed the date that he wanted all U.S. forces to be withdrawn from Afghanistan from September 11th up a few days to August 31st. And the Taliban has basically come out and said that, yeah, we would like you guys to be gone by August 31st. And all indications are basically more or less that's going to be nearly impossible for the United States to do. So I guess, number one, is this deadline feasible, which as we're recording, this is only a week away. And if it is or isn't, what would the consequences be? Well, so I think um, the Taliban has been fairly firm on this, that they, they want us out on August 31st. And I think we have to take into account the reality that if they wish to do that, uh, they have the ability to do that, right? Meaning uh, they could shut down the airport, a whole host of different ways they could do that. They could allow a terror attack on the on the airport. Uh, they could, uh, you know, use artillery in the mountain ranges surrounding the airport to shut the airport down. Uh, they could uh, stop the flow of people to the airport, where there's already some indication they're doing that. We saw a statement by a Taliban leader saying they were no, go- no longer going to allow Afghans to move through the checkpoints uh, to the airport, and some indication that uh, they're not allowing uh, Americans who are of Af- Afghan descent to, to move through those checkpoints either. So the Taliban, basically, they have the airport on lockdown. I've also seen reports that they've been just taking away United States citizens' passports or stuff that have been trying to get through the airport to get out of there. Yeah, I've seen those stories as well. I mean, that's something that we saw. Uh, I mean, Biden came out and explicitly said, no, they're letting people through, but that doesn't seem to be true, or at least not true in all cases. I mean, it's worth noting that the people responsible for security in Kabul are the Haqqani Network, which are sort of the worst of the worst of the Taliban, uh, you know, the, the head of the Haqqani network, we, we have a multi-million dollar bounty on his head. Uh, so needless to say, he and we don't get along that well. Um, and, and those are the guys that, right, that are running these checkpoints. So uh, this notion that you can cut a deal with the Taliban and, and, and ensure down to the, the closest, you know, to the smallest checkpoint that your people can get through, I don't think that was ever very credible. There are many threats or, uh, let's say, possibilities of undermining our credibility and the integrity of our nation and uh, our citizens, but I would not heard that they are singling out uh, American citizens of Afghan descent. That is a particular <laughs> challenge to what we consider uh, civil society and the fact that once you're a citizen, you have certain protections. 
Um, and that'll be interesting slash sad to see what actually happens to those people. Well, I mean, that's a bigger question because it doesn't seem like the Biden administration is is uh, prioritizing American citizens right. getting out either. I mean, we see these uh, Pentagon and and State Department briefings where they're touting the number of people getting out, and it's you know, and it's tens of thousands a day, which is excellent. I think that's positive. Uh, obviously, we all agree that that's a positive thing. But then they get they get pressured on the number of Americans that are getting out, and they're very cagey about it. Uh, you know, sometimes it's you know, I think they. There was one day where it was, you know, several thousand people had been evacuated, and they said, how many Americans? And it was, you know, it was less than 500. Yeah, so the Pentagon spokesperson, John Kirby, um, a couple days ago said that, quote, the goal is to get as many people out as fast as possible. And he continued to say, the focus is trying to do this as best we can by the end of the month, which is great and all, but selfishly, we should be prioritizing Americans getting out of there, right? I mean, yes. <laughs> the, the purpose of the American government is to safeguard Americans. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, we can we can look at what we want to do in terms of helping, uh, you know, Afghan citizens that worked with us. I mean, I think the American people are in agreement on that uh, when it comes to, you know, people uh, that literally, you know, got shot at on our behalf. Uh, but A, that's not a very large number. It's certainly not the number of people that are being evacuated. And even then, the American people are in agreement that American citizens need to be evacuated first, and that's not happening. And I think, you know, this is something that that people need to hold the Biden administration to account for, because when it comes to evacuating war zones, they think you're going to get Americans out first. And that doesn't seem to be the case. I, I think it's questionable whether the administration is fully exerting or, or, you know, pulling out all the stops to get Americans out. We hear about uh, British and French commando forces, I believe, getting their citizens out, at least out of Kabul. But when you think about a, you know, a helicopter operation or, you know, we're still talking about a local evacuation from Kabul. I think there, there's not enough focus on what about the people that are not in Kabul? I, I think most of them are given that, you know, think if it was Washington, D.C., most of the diplomats slash NGOs, whatever, are there. But there's other, other major cities or just other places they're embedded. How on earth are those people ever going to get out if, if we can't even get people past the Kabul checkpoints? Do you have any idea on those logistics? No, no. I mean, I think that's an interesting question. And, and why is it that, that the Biden administration is so determined not to do this? And I think it must be because it would break the agreement that they made with the Taliban. That's my that's my concern, that they, they won't go out and get Americans uh, who are outside the airport because it would... They're afraid that the Taliban would then nix the deal and shut down the airport entirely. That would make sense to me as, as, as the logic behind it. But, but that, doesn't, that doesn't explain how the, the, um, our NATO allies with, with less footprint and less abilities, you would think, uh, to do these operations went out on a limb and did them, you know? Why? Well, that's because yeah, that's because they. I mean, that, that pretty clearly they were not in on the agreement, right. and uh, and you know, you go try and tell the uh, British SAS that they can't go save British citizens, sure. which uh, you know used to be the case for for Americans too. And I, the whole thing is, I mean, is 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 remarkable in in a lot of ways. It's just absolutely stunning. Just going back to what the Pentagon spokesperson has been saying, how is it possible that we don't know? how many American citizens are there? I know they've given a few, I guess, excuses or reasons for that, but how is it possible that we don't know how many Americans are there and how many we've gotten out? How did they get into the country? Right. Uh, how did they, 
you know, how did they leave America with it, with their American passport uh, and saying, all right, bye, you know, I'm headed to Kabul, and we don't have a record of that? We don't have a record of them arriving in Kabul? I don't, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I, I went I went on a trip back in June to out of the country to Turks and Caicos, and it was such a pain in the butt getting in and out. There were, there were a million pieces of paperwork I had to fill out, both with the U.S. and with the Turks and Caicos government, and that's just a tiny island. And you would think that there would be similar, if not stricter, restrictions for U.S. citizens going to a country as unstable historically as Afghanistan has been, right? Yeah, I mean, that would make sense to me. Now, I mean, maybe you have, you know, examples of like dual nationals, like Afghan U.S. citizens, uh, where maybe they traveled on an Afghan passport, so you don't necessarily know that they hold an American passport or whatever. But I would think that that would be a very tiny group. And I mean, it, I mean, this, this, the numbers that came out where they were saying like 15,000, that number came out pretty quick, that, that that was what they were looking at. So it seemed like they had a pretty good estimate of what they were dealing with. Uh, well, actually, it goes to an interesting point. I don't know if we've had a breakdown. Well, again, we don't have exact numbers, apparently, from the administration. But, like, who are these people in the sense? I think they're not military contractors, right? So are they NGO uh, or, you know, part of the government aid, U.S. government aid apparatus or something like that? Or, yeah, I think, I think mostly we're talking about NGOs, business and contractor types, you know, Guys that are over there because they're supposed to drive a truck to put concrete somewhere, right? A lot of that, a lot of that is being done by U.S. contractors. So I think there's a lot of that uh, that's going on. Um, when people hear the word contractor, they tend to think of like Blackwater or something. But right. yeah, no, there's actually like a lot of American contractors that are just doing like regular things right. to try to make the Afghan uh, infrastructure work. Uh, and so apparently, the, you know, those guys are. are, are part of the group that we would be talking about here plus you've got probably you know mi- missionary and charity types as mm-hmm, well mm-hmm. that are not not on a government contract but are but are trying to do you know a positive thing or whatever right and so let's say you're one of the lucky americans to get out of the country i know there, there was a picture going around twitter last week when all those people are on the c-17 or whatever getting evacuated how strictly are those people like being vetted to get on the planes because i know someone raised a question of whether or not a Taliban person could have snuck onto that plane and caused havoc on there. Are they, I'm assuming it's not TSA checkpoints at the Kabul airport. Well, here's one of the things that's so interesting, uh, to begin with, uh, the, so the class of, um, of migrant you would be talking about would be this special, uh, this SIV, right? Special immigrant visa, which are for people that played some role in helping the U S. Uh, mostly when people hear that, they think, like military translators or, you know, intelligence assets. Uh, But that is only a very small portion of what they're actually talking about. Uh, It it extends to, you know, people who drove, people who were, you know, gardeners at the embassy or whatever. It's a really broad, it's it's extended to quite a a large degree uh, since it was originally passed. And then the other thing to keep in mind is it's not just people who have an SIV visa. It's people who have applied for an SIV visa. So they have not been approved. They have not necessarily gone through all of the rigmarole to get the visa. They have an application for the visa. And as our friend Mark Krikorian at uh, Center for Immigration Studies pointed out recently, like once they land in America, they're in. There's no way you're kicking them out. 
you know, you, you, you just can't, you know, you're just not going to be able to send somebody back to Afghanistan. So if somebody gets on a plane with an, with a, with an application for one of these visas and they land at a U.S. military base or whatever, they're in. There's no way that they're, they're not going to be here uh, for a, however long they choose. So that's one issue. I mean, but yeah, in terms of vetting, we're already seeing problems. The uh, UK government had a, a recent story out of, out of Britain where a uh, Afghan national uh, landed in Birmingham, England, and he was on the no-fly list. So he's not supposed to be able to get on a plane anywhere, uh, and he gets on one of these flights out of Kabul and lands in Birmingham and, and fortunately is detected. So who knows what will happen out of that. But, and then you also have a case out of France where they are currently surveilling uh, five Afghan evacuees uh, because of ties to the Taliban. So we, you know, we already have examples of poor vetting or failed vetting or no vetting coming out of uh, some of the people that are that are evacuating on these flights. So that's that's problem number two. Like problem number one, right, is that we're not getting number uh, the we're not getting Americans out first, and then problem number two is we have no idea who we're actually getting out. Well, the mention of Western Europe uh, brings up another knock-on effect down the road. You know, we're, we're so focused on the immediate problem and the airport and flying these people out. But, you know, once this uh, immediate issue fades a little bit, you, you have dislocations of population again in Afghanistan. You're going to have millions or who knows how many, but are going to be heading west. They're going to be heading to the borders of the EU. And then we're going to have possibly a replay of the 2015 uh, uh, surge into Europe and all the problems that that caused with, you know, Eastern Europeans uh, with a different uh, strategy than Western, with Eastern being more opposed to it. And then uh, will, will these Western leaders be able to sell this to their populations again with, with these people coming in? And then, of course, the layer of, of COVID as well, which also comes into our southern border. It's just a huge mess. Well, we're, I mean, we're going to have the same we're going to have the same problem that they had in in, in Europe with Syria with the Afghan refugees on our southern border, because our southern border is wide open. Now, it's already the case that Afghan nationals do cross the southern border, not in huge numbers, uh, but a couple every year. But there are routes. There are ways to get from Afghanistan uh, out, up into Central Asia, then out and, and in, in eventually into South America and then across the border. It does happen. We do get, uh, you know, we get people from India, we get people from Pakistan, we get people from Afghanistan on the southern border, and the southern border is wide open. So, absolutely, we're going to see that happen uh, as long as these, you know, these two policies remain uh, open. It's just incredible that we've only been talking for a few minutes, and we've already laid out countless problems that have happened as a result of this. And then if you ask a State Department official, or they act like they had no idea this was going to happen. That's been their line over and over again. Oh yeah, what was the um, Matt? What was the thing that Jen Psaki said um, last week, where she she got pressed on the Americans being stranded, and uh, and she had the most incredibly yeah she she said dense response. She said, um, "quote I think it's irresponsible to say that Americans are stranded. They are not. We are committed to bringing Americans who want to come home home." So this is this is going to be the argument. I'm already seeing it get pushed out on Twitter. 
where if you if you make a comment about failed uh, failed evacuation or the inability to get Americans out, all of a sudden you start getting these bots in your replies saying, "Well, they chose they did, they chose to stay. They didn't, you know, they got called multiple times and they ignored it." And it's like, "Who are you?" Like, where? I, I, and and in response to that, you you have people, yeah, whether or not they're they're bots or not, but they're and specifically the the CNN reporter that's been there on the ground, which regardless of what you think about them, it's commendable that she was there and risking her life, I think it's fair to say. But she's saying that, yeah, this isn't true. And yeah. there was a video of her like getting harassed by the Taliban when she was trying to make her way to the airport or just minding her own business, more or less. So it's... It, it's, just com- it comes down to a bizarre like postmodern parsing of language or what a word means. Actually, let's go... <laughs> Bill Clinton, what the meaning of is, is, or whatever, like... Yeah, what is stranded? Yeah, I mean, most people would reasonably say if there's a man with a gun stopping you from getting where you want to go, then you're stranded. Like, you know. And isn't it it, the State Department, whoever is charging $2,000 or something for plane tickets? So if you do somehow get the ability to get back, then you have to drop two grand to get here. I think they might have waived that after pressure, uh, but. Which is the right thing to do. Yeah, I mean, that that is actually standard policy. Like, if you're escaping some, like, tropical island because of a volcano, they're going to charge you the same. Uh, But. But usually they didn't have, you know, advanced knowledge that the volcano was going to go off right. and still encouraged you to go there right. uh, and or work for them. Right. That's so, just that's just the craziest thing about all this to me is just the inability for our government to have thought that any of this was going to happen or come out and publicly say that they thought this was going to happen. They just can't admit well, if a, they could just come out and say, hey, we mess this up a little bit, then I think that would alleviate a lot of it would go a long way right, to, sure. to reestablishing but, some goodwill and sense of competence if but, they were like, if, oh wow we really bungled this. but of course they did know or they knew something you know maybe not the exact details but they knew some aspects of this you know from the refugee to the military to the of course but i think it's no one wanted to be left holding the bag and then the crucial you know but probably that happens in most cabinets where people have different opinions and it bounces back and forth to me, would think, I would think the crucial uh, thing is that you don't have a president making the decision. Or if he does, people don't take him seriously in the room. He can barely probably uh, follow the thread of the conversation. I mean, that, like, that's where an executive or a president uh, is crucial because th- there is no good or easy solution. So you're going to have to. And somebody be, has to own it. Yeah. So, so I think that's the main problem here. None of the other ones, you know, if they had character, this has been pointed out, if they had character and they really disagreed, they would resign or they would have at worst or, you know, leaked or something, you know, uh, but um, none of them, they have, it seems they don't have many scruples and therefore there's no um, impetus to, to come clean. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, we've seen that with the, some of the media coming out of this, that you know, very quickly we started to see leaks that, oh, no, the intelligence community knew that this was a risk and the Biden administration did it anyway, which, I mean, maybe, but we haven't really seen any military or intelligence people come out and say, you know, I got to get out of here. I'm going to resign because they bungled this badly. We warned them. They didn't listen, which, frankly, you should have resigned before it happened. Because you should have resigned and come forward and said, this is going to be a disaster and we're warning them not to do it and they're going to do it anyway and somebody has to stop this. And that would have been the right thing to do. That comes back. So Fred Flights, the center's president, had a really good piece in The Federalist the other day talking about the 25th Amendment has been coming up recently. And while that is unlikely to happen just based on the makeup of the House and Senate right now, but if you cannot 
get by now, they're maybe replacing some of his yes man, as Fred called him. So his national security team in general. What do you guys think of that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, I think Fred's right when he says, look, I mean, the the, the right thing to do, the, the constitutional move to do would be to 25th Amendment Biden because he's clearly not with it or impeach him for his failure. And that's a provision where the uh, cabinet actually, right? Is a majority of the cabinet votes to remove him? Yeah. On competence grounds? Yeah. yeah. And then it has to go to the legislature. Yeah. Okay. Um, which I don't, I don't think would happen. Um, it's certainly not going to happen while this disaster is still underway because nobody's going to want to take responsibility for it. Um, so you're not going to have leadership when you really need leadership because nobody wants to take responsibility for it. So they're very happy to hang it on, uh, Joe. But then of course your other option would be to impeach Biden for the failure and, and, uh, you know, the inability to serve in office, uh, which obviously isn't going to happen either. So then what do you do? Well, I, I think Fred is right that having some people in there who could actually push back and say, no, Mr. President, that's not the right thing to do would be, yeah, would be positive. Uh, my personal opinion, this isn't, this isn't Fred's opinion, my opinion, is that those resignations and demands for uh, people to be fired needs to extend beyond just the Biden administration into the bureaucracy. I think there are, uh, you know, I think... Uh, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin needs to be held accountable. I think the Joint Chiefs of Staff need to be held accountable. I mean, Mark Milley, uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, came out at an armed forces uh, hearing and said that there was no tactical necessity to hold on to Bagram Air Base. Well, that appears to have been the wrong call, and he needs to own that. Uh, so, yeah, I absolutely agree that the Biden officials need to be held accountable, and we need to get somebody in there that is an adult uh, but then I think we also have to hold some of these bureaucratic positions responsible for their failures as well. But one silver lining might be that, you know, these people are also in uh, some sort of a, a media cocoon where they don't have there's no consequences to their wrong decisions. Or, you know, let's look at the Biden campaign. There's no consequences to his missteps. He's sheltered. But the thing is, at some point that hits the wall of reality. Now we're seeing real world geopolitics where it doesn't you know cnn can't cover for you anymore like you know this this is going to rebound back on you and then we're left with these shells of people that have uh, been advanced for reasons that are not corresponding to actual expertise and reality you know so hopefully maybe as a as a silver lining to this um the american people have some more insight or leverage into having a better better servants better civil servants yeah i mean thinking it's talking about adults in the room i think worth taking a look at this story which is cia chief visits taliban in afghanistan uh so the director of the cia a guy named william j burns he's a longtime diplomat uh longtime uh cia type uh so he's got a lot of experience and they apparently sent him to visit the taliban leadership to what end, we don't exactly know. Uh, presumably, he's going to ask for more time. I don't know why he would be, well, the Taliban would be interested in talking to him. I mean, you're talking about, he's going to be going over there and talking to guys that we were literally holding in Guantanamo. Uh, and, you know, whose last uh, whose last interaction with the CIA was interrogation. Um, but, you know, maybe he, as CIA chief, has the latitude to... to make a deal or cut an arrangement off the record. And that's what the Biden administration is hoping for. I don't know. Uh, I mean, I think the Taliban pretty much said this is a non-starter. It's not going to happen. But 
Yeah, the Taliban. There's um, the spokesperson came out yesterday on Monday, and basically warned the U.S. military not to stay a day later than August 31st. And he said, "quote This is something you can say. It's a red line. It will deteriorate the relation and create mistrust between us." Unquote. Which is ironic because, like, obviously there already was mistrust between the U.S. and the Taliban. Well, here's a good question: What relationship? Right. That's right. what I would like to right. know. I would like to get to the bottom of what exactly was agreed to between the Biden administration and the Taliban as to this withdrawal. Well, here's an interesting question, you know, and Kyle, you, you talked about what the Taliban or other groups that they may or may not have control over at this time would do to the airport or could do to disrupt operations. So when August 31st comes around and if they take it seriously, which it seems like they would, what actual tactical measures might they, you know, kick in if we're not evacuated, do you think? Oh, I mean, you know, you could... Uh, you know, you could just pull your protection from the airport and let, you know, ISIS car bomb it. Uh, you know, you could they, they could, you know, send in suicide bombers in among the people trying to get through the checkpoints uh, and blow those up so that you can't get into the airport. You know, if the Taliban wanted to take responsibility, which based on their actions, I don't think they would. I think they would um, I think they would let a third party be the, the enforcement uh, but presumably they could shell the airport uh, from that position. They well, could overrun the airport. I mean, we have a bunch of troops there now. I mean, more troops than we've had, more troops than we had in Afghanistan before the withdrawal started. Uh, so it would be a pretty messy, messy fight. Yeah, are, but, are, are they? Uh, it seems like they're relatively lightly armed and they're literally scattered across the base. Is that correct? Is there's no heavy weaponry that these ground forces have? Right. So that's a good question, right? Because why did we blow? Uh, or leave most of our heavy equipment before we evacuated the civilians. I mean, it would seem to me, and I'm not a military planner, but it would seem to me that the thing to do would be evacuate all of the civilians, draw down your military force, blow anything that's too big to take with you, and then peace out. But also now that we're in in this situation, again, as a a, a layman on this, but it, it just seems that massing thousands of lightly armed troops in an airport where they can be a target and they have no and are surrounded by mountains yeah <laughs> right like what what is and, what and, are the, and you're not pushing out into the city to expand that cordon of security right you know i mean it would seem to me that that would if you actually wanted to secure the airport that was what you would be doing you would be constantly right. controlling you know as as far out as possible who but, gets but, close to the airport but then that would which we're not doing the taliban is doing for us but if we did that, if we pushed out of the airport, that would imply a, a longer and a continuation of the, quote, occupation and a continuation of the war. Like, you know, do you see any situation where if, God forbid, our, our uh, you know, a, a number of our troops were killed or there are um, uh, suicide bombings at the entrance, et cetera, where we would strike out again, we would start airstrikes again, we would, stri- you know, strike out into the city? I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what we would do. Uh, I would I would think that would be the reaction of a lot of people in in, in the Department of Defense that they would want to respond very quickly. But again, it comes down to those, these are crucial, like severe. These are serious decisions. You need a president to make that decision. Yeah, you, I have no faith. You know. It, yeah, that that they they have the Biden administration has staked everything on the goodwill of the Taliban and. Now the Taliban is saying that they're going to hold us to this artificially created line, which Biden created, uh, and and what is he going to do? I think he's going to I think he's going to hold to it. 
I think he's going to leave. I think he will leave on August the 31st. Uh, everything he's said, you know, their unwillingness to talk about, you know, oh, they're, you know, the Americans aren't stranded. They're just sort of hanging out. Uh, all of that seems to point to me that, that on, come August 31st, Biden will pull the plug. But but again, but, uh, who knows? But, but, but that, again, again, it comes down to then you you know you can massage and frame it any way you want, but then you come down to actual reality, and it seems like you know, and commentators are saying, and I would agree, the next step once our military is out is to start taking hostages, <laughs> and and this will show up on on TV, and this this will be the next disaster, and it'll be milking our money, and and you know. So this was my argument, which is why did we ever let the Taliban leadership leave Qatar? Uh, if it were up to me, they would never leave Qatar and arrive in Afghanistan alive unless all of our people were safe. Now, that's a good strategic move, isn't uh, it? I mean, I think that's a, I think that would be a language that the Taliban would understand. Um, that's, not, that's not the way we conduct foreign diplomacy in the United States, but that's, uh, that's uh, I think, it would be a language that the Taliban would understand. They'd say, your plane doesn't take off until all of our planes are safe. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't get to go to Afghanistan until all of our people are out of Afghanistan. Right. That would be serious leverage, but it's like, you know, once we pull out, we literally have words or we have, we're going to go back in or we're going to start up sorties again or something, you know, there, there's just no, right. and we, the, yeah, there's yeah. no, I mean, there's no American will for going back and staying. Uh, there's no, there's no will to, you know, accept the outcome, the negative outcome of leaving. It's, it's, it's fair to say that there's pretty much no way that we can evacuate every single U.S. citizen by the 31st, right? I would say, I mean, not at the rates they're currently doing it. Right. Uh, and, and, assuming they've, you know, and then accounting for people who aren't even in Kabul and stuff like that. No, I think there's no way. Right. And then, so let's say President Biden does withdraw on the 31st, then just essentially leaving Americans, they will be stranded there at that point, right? That would be impossible to well, I mean, sugarcoat. You, then you're totally dependent on the goodwill of the Taliban that like, oh, so then what do you, right? So then you're pretty much going to have to give them international recognition, which presumably we're already going to do. Uh, but isn't that just an oxymoron, the goodwill of the Taliban? Well, yeah. but Let's say the pragmatic uh, participation of the Taliban. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like I said, everything that they are doing suggests that they are totally 100% dependent on whatever this agreement is they cut with the Taliban. So, yeah, they say, well, they're not stranded there because, you know, as soon as we leave, the Taliban will reopen the airport and commercial flights will fly again. And Americans can just buy themselves, you know, a seat on one of the handful of flights that fly into the Taliban-controlled Kabul International Airport. (laughs) (laughs) To Islamabad? I don't know where they'd go. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And a point that I can't remember who brought it up, so I apologize, but um, the Kabul airport, it's not your Dulles or it's not your Reagan, your JFK. There's only one runway there. So the Taliban, in theory, could just bomb that runway and make it no longer usable. And then then what would happen? I mean, that... Yeah, then nobody leaves. Right. At least not by air. I mean, I mean, there's measures you can take to refill or, re- or fix the runway, but then you'd need to bring on those supplies. So where would you get that from? Right. I mean... <laughs> The, the American uh, military is actually really good at creating airports. Yeah. Uh, they can jump into a place. Uh, and, you know, this was one of the questions that was going to, like, when they activated the 82nd, was the 82nd Airborne going to jump into uh, Bagram and reopen the airport so we could get more people out? And evidently that plan was discussed and nixed, according to at least some of the leaks coming out in the press. 
uh, how serious of a discussion it was, I don't know, but that was one of the things that was being discussed. And they said, nope, we're going to, re- I mean, we're going to rely totally on this one runway airport that you mentioned to get out all of these people. So this is an impossible question, but so on September 1st, do you think that's the last that U.S. troops will be in Afghanistan for the foreseeable future? Or do you think that this will continue to go on? I don't know. I uh, I don't know what we're going to do. I would say that they'd only be on the ground if we decided to go over that uh, boundary and they remain, a few remain. I don't think we're going back in. No, I don't think so no. either. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I think either we'll still have control of the airport and we'll still be trying to get people out, uh, basically keeping on as we are, or we get out on the 31st. I can't see any... Uh, I can't see the Biden administration making the decision to, you know, expand their footprint, go back in and, you know, take all the necessary steps to, you know, to to secure that area. I think they're going to, like I said, they're going to stick to this Taliban deal come uh, heck or high water and just hope that the Taliban doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't do anything too major to them when they when they go over this red line, if that's what they end up doing. So what would this, more generally speaking, mean for the people of Afghanistan if the U.S. does pull out in terms of the treatment of women has been coming up a lot recently in the news? Yeah, this is, uh, all of a sudden they care about this again. Um, so, yeah, the, and this is one of the bizarre things, right? All during the negotiation with the Taliban and Qatar, the... Uh, U.S. government has been pressing. The Taliban has to have an inclusive government. They need to have a democratic government that respects the rights of women uh, as if they have no idea who they're talking to. Like, they don't know, as if they know nothing about the Taliban and what the Taliban believes. And the Taliban replies, yes, women will have all the rights uh, that are due to them under Sharia. And the U.S. government says, oh, great. <laughs> they don't know what those rights are, though. They, they have no idea what those rights are, and, and the answer is that there aren't, you know, there aren't very many, um, if any. What we would recognize as rights under uh, Islamic law for women, um, you know, that would that would match what we think of in a Western sense. And but this is, I mean, this has been our problem in Afghanistan from day one which is we never really understood the Taliban or what they believed or why they believed it uh, or what the implications were of any of these things that they were saying. And that's why, you know, we got into this problem where we set up an Afghan government and then we said, yeah, and they're going to be based on Sharia. So I think their constitution literally says uh, the aforementioned, if it contradicts Sharia, it's out or something like that. Yeah, to that, if it contradicts the... The Islamic law, then it doesn't count. So we set up an Afghan government around this principle, which is the same principle that the Taliban is beholden to. Only the Taliban takes it seriously. Well, who's going to win in a a contest of wills? Somebody that takes uh, their ideology seriously or people who are just going through the motions because they thought these were some pretty words that you could put in a document? I mean, all of this gets to the question of, uh, we talked about competency, but also confidence and whether you can have confidence in what the U.S. government is going to say and do. Uh, Apparently, if you're American in Kabul, you can't have that confidence. 
Um, and this is, you know, this is spreading to our allies. And, you know, the Europeans apparently shocked by the, the uh, departure from Afghanistan, totally unaware of what the deals were, or what was going to happen, uh, which is part of the reason they're so mad. Uh, and, I mean, they've been pretty open. I mean, the, the British Parliament was brutal against the Biden administration last week, uh, just absolutely furious. And, you know, our, our, our opponents are, are laughing at us because we're so uh, untrustworthy. Yeah, well, you know, uh, the People's Republic of China wasted no time to take advantage of this um, on, on propaganda grounds. The, the state-controlled Global Times tweeted, From what happened in Afghanistan, those in Taiwan should perceive that once a war breaks out in the Straits, the island's defense will collapse in hours and the U.S. military won't come to help. As a result, the DPP, Taiwan's forces, will quickly surrender. Uh, they say once a cross-straits war breaks out, that's quite a threat, just assuming that, that it will happen. Um, and, and Kyle, as you know, our, our deterrence and our credibility uh, internationally in general has taken a, a, a massive hit. I, I did want to note, though, that uh, you know, uh, while, while it's, it's useful propaganda points for them, that the Taiwan situation does differ in very important ways. Um, uh, Taiwan is a coherent nation state with a shared language and culture. It spent 70 years as a, as a political unit with, with uh, successive governments. It does have an advanced economy and military. It has an air force and navy. Um, and although, although political views vary, uh, a 2020 Pew poll showed that only 35% of Taiwanese had a favorable view of China, compared to 68%, for example, who had a favorable, favorable view of the U.S. So it's not the sort of, uh, you know, uh, splintered uh, views and, and positions of the Afghan population. Another thing, Taiwan is an island, so basically there's nowhere for, for people to go. They're going to stand their ground. And another thing is that there are other allies, and of course the U.S. is the linchpin, but just last month uh, Japan stated openly, which was a huge um, departure from their uh, very understated um, uh, posture before, that they would go to war if China attacks Taiwan. So that's that's a serious country making I mean, a serious that's a That's not even something the U.S. government publicly says. No, that's right. It's There's sort of ambiguity. There's, there's an implied... Uh, um, um, situation there, whereas with like uh, Japan and South Korea, we have an explicit. Well, I think uh, I think didn't Biden get in trouble for in, uh, just last week for including Taiwan in a list of places right. we would protect, and then the government came and walked it back. I think he threw that in there. Yes. Yeah. I mean that you know slip of the tongue, right? He, <laughs> he doesn't know what he's talking about. But um, no, but you know, but ultimately it does depend on the U.S. deterrent, and it does depend in the moment that we will actually deploy and, and live up to our, uh, uh, you know, our promises. But um, fortunately, um, Afghanistan is a uniquely unstable and divided and situation where they're isolated. And um, we can count on a few strategic things in our, in our corner for Taiwan. So for sure, in Taiwan, their military infrastructure, everything is a lot more stable than Afghanistan. But in this, in this example, Taiwan is the people of Afghanistan and China would be the Taliban in this. And China is a lot more advanced in everything, right, than the Taliban. And we saw how quickly Afghanistan fell. So how would the U.S. react if you have a much more competent and large and well-funded and structured military force like the Chinese invading Taiwan? Well, to, But China also has uh, vastly more international obligations and has, you know, uh, trade and other 
uh, systems it needs to uphold. Right. It needs credibility in the international system, which the Taliban doesn't care about. They're operating in a different world, right? I mean, I would say that the lesson that I would be concerned about if I were the Chinese is that the Taiwanese would be the Tal- would be the Taliban in that situation, and they would be the United States, uh, because you know, I think that most military planners say that China could take Taiwan uh, absent aid. Um, but could they keep it and at what cost? And I mean, I, if I was a Taiwanese military planner, that would be where I would be. And, and I've seen a couple other people making this point. Uh, Edward Lutwak, who's a major foreign policy guy, is, is, you know, he's written a bunch of books. He, he said, you know, that they need, you know, Taiwan should be talking very seriously about, you know, c- you know civil defense and, you know, preparing for the possibility of, uh, of an insurgency to, make the uh, Chinese occupation of Taiwan as, as expensive a proposition as possible. Yeah, our, our senior fellow Grant Newsham has written on that as well, and he does think that's a credible, uh, an insurgency is completely credible, just because there's popular support. And um, although it's conscript army, um, many millions of men in Taiwan are trained on basics of military you know, proficiency. Um, and yeah, it, it, China perhaps could hold the territory. Number one, the domestic insurgency. Number two, it's across water to resupply. <laughs> it takes uh, the logistics are are crazy. Um, and in that whole time, where they're trying to figure out that that difficult situation, they will be coming under sanction, you know, diplomatic, all sorts of pressure. Uh, they will have spent their political capital uh, massively. So again, it, it, we we have the advantage that China is integrated into the international system and they have other levers we can pull. Well, I mean, a disadvantage though is that they are integrated into the international <laughs> and they have other levers they can pull <laughs> right, and right. will pull. Uh, I mean, that's one of the things that would concern me too is is we've already seen when people are forced to make a choice between China and Taiwan that has very low cost. You know, we, we talked about the Olympics on one of these previous podcasts, right? Uh, where, you know, Taiwan isn't allowed to pr- perform under their own flag and stuff like that. So even when there's a very low cost, we don't see the international community buck China. So if there's a very high cost to bucking them on something that China really cares about, I, I'm skeptical. I mean, I think you've raised a lot of good um, reasons to not be despondent. Yeah. But... Uh, no, ultimately, it's and this, this has been said about the Middle East during these decades of time, it's about the strong horse. Ultimately, it's about if we have confidence and, and if we have a credible deterrent because those, you know, Southeast Asian, well, Japan and South Korea, Taiwan itself, the Southeast Asian nations, Vietnam, et cetera, uh, they're happy. They want to be on our side. They, and, and they've in the past have uh, provided basing and all this, but they need to know that we are going to follow through. Nobody wants to back a loser. <laughs> right. And and that's where this Afghanistan thing is a real propaganda disaster. Yeah. yeah. I, I, people, I don't think, under really understand that the you know the full consequence of that like that's something that you know afghanistan is a perfect example of like if you're in a tribal society and your tribe backs the loser there will be costs like real costs and that is sort of a the real politic real world that so many countries actually if you're a tiny country uh that that you have to take seriously like if i back the wrong horse we could all disappear right and the U- the signals that the U.S. has been sending in terms of our competence, our confidence in ourselves, all of those things are absent right now. 
Speaking of, of tribal uh, politics, though, the other the other aspect related to Afghanistan and our primary adversary, China, is the concept that they will move in along the lines of their Belt and Road Initiative for uh, natural resources and um, and transportation links, um, and that this is a real win for them in in uh, along those lines. But um, when you hear uh, Chinese officials speaking, it's much more tempered because uh, basically uh, it's it's hard to uh, trust in or rely on the Afghan infrastructure. Uh, for example, an AP article uh, noted that uh, China's state-owned National Petroleum Corp suspended oil drilling in the Amu Daraya Basin because of a delay in the signing of a transit agreement with Uzbekistan to allow crude oil to be trucked to China. The Afghan government later voided the drilling agreement. And it notes also a metallurgical group from China sank $3 billion uh, to exploit the world's largest copper deposits. uh, And due to insurgent activity in that province, they weren't able to follow through on that. So um, not only uh, is is there that angle, but, you know, of course, in their Xinjiang uh, province, they're facing a uh, Islamic insurgency. And then uh, if you've ever looked at the map of Afghanistan, there's this little nub that goes off on the northeastern part of it. And there actually is a border with China. Most people don't think about this. So it's actually a 76-kilometer land border. Um, And there's something called, what that little nub is, it's the Wakhan Corridor, which is a mountain pass. I actually looked at it on on the map. There's something called the Wakhan Nature Refuge as well. It's absolutely beautiful, like (laughs) uh, huge mountains and and a river that obviously cut this pass. And, you know, this is an ancient trading corridor, which obviously, just like the border regions between Pakistan and Afghanistan, they can be ferrying weapons and fighters, and and this is a problem. I saw an interesting, um, I don't know if there was a whole article around this, but it's just a little factoid that came out on Twitter. Uh, they were alleging that the Taliban was actually going door-to-door looking for Uyghurs, hmm. which are obviously the population in um, in that restive providence. Uh, I would not be surprised if, and the Taliban has made some statements that were conciliatory and somewhat friendly towards China, I would not be surprised if the Taliban are willing to throw the Uyghurs under the bus, uh, in part because most of the rest of the Muslim world has done the same. Right. Uh, there are very few Muslim countries that have raised any hue or cry about the situation in Xinjiang. And I think right now, anyway, the Taliban doesn't want to do anything that will disturb their, their taking over Afghanistan. However, one party that I think does want to get involved in this is Turkey. Hmm. Uh, And I think that is what's motivating uh, Turkey's President Erdogan. He really, really wants to control Kabul airport. He really wants to have a play in Afghanistan. And I think he wants to be able to use Afghanistan to link up with the Turkic uh, people in, in Central Asia and and also the, the Muslim population in Xinjiang. And I think that's his his play. So it will be interesting to see uh, what they do there. That's fascinating. Uh, and and speaking of Erdogan, you know, there's there's another serious actor who has a real ideology of a pan-Turkic um, <laughs> alliance that he's actually putting, you know, he's actually putting paid on. But uh, another dynamic, it's so complicated. But, you know, speaking of Belt and Road, Pakistan is a nation where China has made a lot of inroads on Belt and Road. So depending on 
how the Islamabad government, they may bring pressure on the Taliban as well, or, you know, they have their Pashtun region as well. Yeah, I think that's how uh, it would work, is that, yeah, the Chinese would put pressure on the Pakistanis who would put pressure on the Taliban. Yeah, And I think all of this just speaks to the bigger picture of how out of touch the U.S. has been with this entire thing, because China and all these other countries are already licking their chops, essentially, at how they can exploit this situation and use it to their advantage, while the U.S. is over here and we can't even figure out how many people we have in the country that we're trying to get out in the first place it just it just it's just the reality of when you leave a vacuum and and you know it that's whether even if we had a competent president in charge it is it is a just the existential question are we supposed to be there or not and you know if we're there that has certain risks and and minuses and if we're not there then it's a vacuum it has other risks yeah and other minus yeah and other other pluses and minuses (laughs) And, and one of the pluses is at least we don't have to be directly involved while all these parties have conflicts. Well, this is—I mean, this is this. This has been a secret in in, in Afghanistan for a long. It's not really a secret in in Afghanistan in a long time. It's easier to be a spoiler than mm-hmm. it is to be the guy trying mm-hmm. to to run things. The British ran into this problem. You know, uh, you can look up uh, the novel Kim by Rudyard mm-hmm. Kipling. It's all about the the um, the intelligence wars between the Russians and the British in Afghanistan. Uh, what they call they used to call the Great Game. And it, it's much easier to deny someone control of the space and make life difficult for them uh, than it is to have to be the guy trying to stabilize things. Which is, of course, what we did with the Soviets, with the Mujahideen. We mm-hmm. had fun disrupting them. But then we had some blowback on that, didn't we? Yeah, there's always, <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, I think, and this is gets to, like, confidence and maturity. Like, there are always going to be costs. And you, you, were, you were getting at that, too, Adam. Like, there's always going to be costs involved. There's always going to be decisions that have to be made they're all you know that and you're just trying to you know get more good than bad out of something and you're trying to advance as much as possible the american national interest what is actually our interest here and you know right now we have a uh, we have an administration that doesn't think it's even in our interest to get american citizens out first so how confident are we that they they have any understanding of what our other national interests are and just going back these are um comments that president biden made back in july talking about the u.s withdrawing from afghanistan he said quote also we need and this will this would happen as a result of the united states withdrawing from afghanistan quote also we need to focus on shoring up america's core strengths to meet the strategic competition with china and other nations that is really going to determine our future unquote so even a month and a half ago, they thought that us withdrawing from Afghanistan was going to make our relationship with China better somehow. And now we can see that couldn't have been further from the truth of what's actually happening. I mean, just it comes down philosophically. There, there's uh, there's many different um, uh, components to foreign policy. And it's like you have the tools, which is the military. Um, you have the um, rhetoric through the diplomacy. But then it just comes down to actually... Uh, walking the walk, and and if 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 Biden and the administration wanted to uh, shore up that deterrence or or be stronger in that relationship, they should not have done what what they've done. That that under that is the ultimate undermining of our position. I mean, and I think it does absolutely get to the core of the way they see foreign policy. Uh, you know, and, and you sort of see the same thing with the Iran negotiations. Uh, whereas, oh, if we give them this thing that they want. They will like us. And the actual foreign policy thinking should be, well, if we give them everything they want, they won't need us. 
uh, and then they can abuse us and do whatever they want to us because they don't need us for anything, which of course is exactly what we're seeing, right? Uh, they they don't need us, and so now they can they feel free to mock us, right? There is definitely that that uh, you know, if you come from the strong horse angle, right? That like we're going to be uh, capable and competent and in charge and let people know what our interests are. And, you know, you can be fair with people and you can be fair uh, in diplomacy without being weak. And the Biden administration manages to be neither fair nor weak or strong. Again, it just comes to zoom out. uh, You know, it it is about our overall orientation. And just the first or easiest example I can think of is the Soviet Union with detente or whatever. You know, it's this it's this um, assumption on the American side. And maybe this is particular to Western culture and self-criticism that we can't change that somehow there's this fixed um the the outside world is fixed and somehow their um uh their priorities and orientations are fixed and also deserve some level of respect while we have to adapt to that it's like you know the soviet union is unchanging it's powerful it has its interests that's our starting point then we react as and same thing with iran you know where as opposed to when when we give it a try as reagan did and just called out evil or you know or if trump goes ahead and kills uh, Soleimani, there's real effects we can shape the the narrative we can shape the real world you know well i think it, it, that's an interesting point because i think the corollary to that is where on the one hand uh you do have the foreign policy strain that says you know their interests are always genuine and ours are not legitimate yeah uh but on the other hand, you also have a strain that says we are able to change them. We can change right. the things that they want and the things that they believe. Uh, and everybody is really the, all the same and everybody wants the same stuff in the end. And I think I think they both come from the same point, right, which is this universal values concept that everybody wants the same thing. Therefore, everybody can be reached and negotiated with and, and – and, um, if we show the proper amount of love and respect, they will give us what we want rather than acknowledging that they have real interests. They have things they really genuinely believe that are, you know, opposed to the things that we have, that our interests and the things that we believe. And I think that the reason why they're so afraid of that admission is because it recognizes that you're always going to be doing foreign policy. You're always going to be doing security. Yeah. There is no, you know, utopia where at the end of the day we all get along because we we won't all get along. Some some countries will have interests that we don't have. We will have interests that impede on their interests, and that's just the nature of you know living in the world. And 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 on the American side, it it, it has just become almost 100% signaling the, the most insane example is where, where Biden uh, ended uh, our pipelines, um, curtailed um, fracking, et cetera. And of course, then there's a lower supply of oil. And then uh, uh, we, we don't want to have a footprint in the Middle East, but the, the oil's in the Middle East. So then we're begging Saudi Arabia to up their oil flow uh, when, when we could have done it domestically or just, you know, it, it's, and also you offended them by attacking them repeatedly and trying to do deals with the Iranians. Right. It's like right. they, they, they don't seem to have this understanding that everything is connected, right? right? Yep. We're selectively selfish, I think, is a good way to put it. And there's sometimes we, where we just have to realize that no matter how much coddling we do to every single other state in the world, we're 
going to have disagreements on some foreign policy issues. And I think people just need to accept that fact. And that would improve a lot of the stuff that we see going on right now. You're right. It just it has to be pragmatic. It's like the United States, you know, Kyle, you, 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 thanks for bringing up the other half of that, which is the weird arrogance that uh, of the, that we think other people are all like us. It's this weird American like universalist foreign policy going going. I mean, then the next thing I think of is like is Wilson, right? Is, is it wanting to make every state a democracy and this sort of thing? We some we need to get back to pragmatic foreign policy because we just have certain interests and we just we need we need energy and we need defensible borders and we need you know these are basics that we need yeah and it's um i think you're exactly right when you point to um you know former president woodrow wilson as being one of the major uh people and and figures that are responsible for this shift in thinking you know the prior thinking of the u.s was really dominated by like like a John Quincy Adams, right? That was like, you know, obviously we we respect people everywhere, we support their desire, uh, where they where that exists to to rule their own affairs, and if they want to be democracies, we think that's great, but we're not going to go around the world, uh, you know. I think he says, you know, f- searching for monsters to destroy, and there was a period, and I think you pinned it with Woodrow Wilson, that we threw that out. Uh, we threw that out, and now, really, you know, all of the disasters that we've faced abroad. I think it, the one maybe silver lining is that we do have an opportunity to get back to that and say, okay, what are our actual interests? Uh, how how can we pursue them in a prudent manner? Uh, that we you know we do the best we can with with what we're presented, and. Um, you know, we, we, we take care of our core interests first. And I think we do have an opportunity to do that. Uh, if we, you know, if we do, if we can successfully manage to find our way out of Afghanistan and start reorienting towards real threats like China, we can, we can say, okay, what do we actually want to achieve in the world? What actually matters to us? And then go forward from there. I think we have a chance. It's very difficult though. Cause now I'm, you know, I think it, there were, men who drove it ideologically like Wilson, but also, you know, that was the point where we were becoming the dominant power or our, our economic power was becoming huge. And it's sort of like, you can't help almost, but engage in the world as your trade expands and you're, you know, you're protecting those supply lines and, and whatnot. And, you know, it would be unprecedented, but America is an unprecedented country. It would be unprecedented if we could somehow find a successful way to be the dominant superpower, but also, not be meddling, you know, not, not be so invested in these conflicts. Yeah. I mean, I think you, you, the, the meddling point, I think is a huge point. It's one of, one of the things I've really been focused on lately, which is that like, as the U S became this uni, uh, mono power, uh, every foreign entities realized that the solution to their problem was in Washington, DC. Mm-hmm. So every civil war is fought in Washington, DC between groups of lobbyists you know, every cross-border conflict between two countries that most of us can't even pronounce is actually fought in, you know, on K Street with lobbyists. And, you know, as a, as a republic, you know, that we rely on legislators and everything, there's just so much room for influence and manipulation by foreign powers, even small foreign powers. They don't have a lot of money. They're still more powerful than the average American special interest, Right. right. And so you get all of these different things where all of a sudden, you know, legislators are being asked to have a policy on some, you know, 
tiny incident that you know the made, Armenia Azerbaijan war <laughs> right or or made you know the 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 forty sixth page of the New York Times and all of a sudden they're supposed to have a policy on it. It's like what you know, and that leads us to everything is in the national interest. We're involved in everything everywhere rather than saying, actually, we don't have a dog in that fight. you know actually we don't we don't have a outcome, you know, we wish you know both sides success we hope you know you know we we, we hope for peace you know you don't have to have an opinion you don't have to get involved everywhere and and but because we're the only power that can decide every outcome or at least we used to be uh there was a great impetus by every other power to say well we need to get the we need to get the americans to weigh in on our side so maybe this could be the ultimate blessing in disguise for reforming united states foreign policy moving forward but I think I speak for everyone when I say I wouldn't hold my breath on that necessarily with this administration. Yeah. And also just to note that it's a horrible way to get there. I mean, what a disgrace. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I can't think of a, I can't think of a world power of that type that did successfully manage to withdraw from that role safely and successfully. But that's what we're talking about managing to, you know, step back from being the world monopower and saying we're going to take care of our interests and we expect that other countries will take care of their interests and as long as your interests don't conflict with our interests we don't have a problem but you know with that it requires that the american people are educated as to what their interests are right we've we have this discussion like with taiwan is defending taiwan really in the american interest that's a conversation we need to start having uh there are a lot of you know there's a lot of history on that um, this is not the place to get into it. We should probably have a podcast on it, but I, I, I have to, and I have to say on that point, I, I'm not, but not Taiwan. Dis- oh, sorry. No, but there's a lot to discuss on that. Yeah. And not Taiwan's an important, maybe the most important one, but not only Taiwan is that I'm disappointed in people on the right who are just sort of knee jerk and know nothing sort of like, uh, get us out of all foreign wars or something like that. Yeah. You know, it, 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 it Obviously, it needs a lot of refinement. We need to have less of a footprint if we ever, you know, do go into another major conflict. But it, just to say we are going to disengage and somehow that's in the American people's interest is just not. Yeah, I mean that 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 is as imprudent uh, as as getting getting out everywhere is as imprudent as getting into everywhere, right? Yeah. Every you know, prudence means making the call based on the situation as it exists right. and understanding each situation. You know, the Taiwan situation is not the Afghanistan situation, right. is not the, you know, wherever situation. And, and although although it would be nice to retreat from, you know, the the early 20th century super engagement from the world with the world, we also can't pretend we're going to go back to that agrarian with muskets and whatnot that everyone talks about. Like, sorry. Nope. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we need you can't you can't LARP. Yeah. <laughs> you can't LARP on the world stage. You yeah. need you need to be serious and you need to be taken seriously, um, and that requires prudence. And abs- I mean, I think that the critics of American imprudence are right. Uh, you know, and it's very easy to be a critic, but I think I think most of the critics are right uh, about our behavior over the last twenty years. Uh, but that doesn't mean that your solution works, and so we need to be able to hash these things out. Part of that, I think, is going to require having a much broader scope of what we can talk about uh and stop having a you know a beltway establishment class that says oh no that's already been decided that, that well goes, yeah but it's been decided by people who have failed at everything so let's look at it again 
Well, that that goes to the our experience with Trump, which is that for all of his failings, he took you know novel approaches to things, um, uh, and I think he really did do a good job of slowly paring down our forces where he could, doing things like hitting Soleimani, which is a one-off, but it has a huge strategic effect, you know, like he, and then doing the Abraham Accords, like he experimented with a lot of unconventional ways to do it, actually. Yeah, I mean, one of the things he understood, I think, was that if you, uh, if you want to pare down, you have to have people that can fill the gap. Because as you mentioned earlier, regarding Afghanistan and China, vacuums, are provocative and somebody will fill the gap. So if you want to control, if you want that area to be peaceful and not a problem for you, uh, as you pull back, you have to come up with somebody else to fill it. You know, in the Middle East, that was the Abraham Accords, working with the Emiratis, the Israelis, the Saudis, and others uh, to figure out what the Middle East would look like. In Europe, I think that was leaning on NATO to try to get them to actually pay their bills, actually meet their, uh, you know, actually meet their requirements if we're going to have a secure safe europe that can resist uh you know resist expansionist powers then they need to pay their bills because the u.s can't be the only one doing it uh that was logical that was a logical process if you were saying we need to remanage how we we do things we can't do everything for everyone and you know he was attacked for that but i think he was right And, and and at least now we have that example now we're going back to not only the conventional weird globalist view, but such an incompetent version of it that it's actually alienating everybody. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So. so this situation obviously isn't going away anytime soon in Afghanistan. So to stay up to date on developments there and elsewhere in the international world, check out the center's website, securefreedom.org to read the latest analysis from the center's team. Thank you for listening to today's show. Not Cleared is a project of the Center for Security Policy. We want to hear from you, so please email us at questions at notcleared.org so we can get in touch with you.